the American dream is about individualism and independence. And it's also a kind of performance, right? It is a performance of invincibility and like having your shit together. And if we're performing that, right, in our sense of self, our sense of like being a successful person is dependent on other people believing, right, that we have all our shit together, then we can't be known to each other. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself where I explore the question, how do we begin again? If we truly take the lessons of this global pandemic to heart, it's clear that it's high time to restructure our lives, our communities, and our relationship to the earth in new ways. But how do we go about doing so? That is the inquiry of this season. An investigation that continues today with an electric interview with writer and activist Mia Birdsong, which was originally recorded on August 18th, 2021, in front of a live Zoom audience. Before we dive into today's episode, a quick reminder that this podcast is now ad-free and 100% listener-supported. If you get something out of this conversation, I would welcome your donation at hurryslowly.co slash donations. All right, let's get started. Mia Birdsong is a writer, an activist, and a storyteller whose work sits at the intersection of race, gender, and class, with a particular focus on family. She's currently a senior fellow at the Economic Security Project, where she's worked with low-income people to reimagine the American social contract. Mia was previously the co-director of Family Story, an organization that works to dismantle family privilege in America, and the vice president of the Family Independence Initiative, a movement and a platform that highlights, invests in, and accelerates the initiative low-income families take to improve their lives. And just last year, Mia published How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community, a remarkable book that synthesizes all of her deep experience working with communities and families and highlighting the wisdom of everyday people. Mia, welcome to Hurry Slowly. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So let's go ahead and dive right in. I'd like to start with a question about the title of your book, How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. Tell me about the word reclaiming. Where are we reclaiming family, friendship, and community from? I think that I generally find that any of the practices, rituals, ways um, that we want to bring into our lives or create in our lives are the ones that are um, more grounded in our humanity, our connection to each other, our connection to the earth, um, that come from places of love and abundance, that those are things that we actually used to do, um, that they're not new. Um, and at the same time, so that's where the reclaiming piece comes from. Um, 
and at the same time, you know, we don't live a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, 3000 years ago. So there is something different about doing those things in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's making me think of something I read today that was saying that wisdom is all of the information that our soul has picked up in previous lives and mm. knowledge is everything that we learn in this life. It just feels kind of nice. Yeah, I definitely think of of so much of um, so many of the ways of thinking about family and friendship and community as things that we're remembering as opposed to mm -hmm. like, you know, things we're like looking up <laughs> and mm. figuring out how to do. Absolutely. In the first chapter of the book, you write, the American dream is both an illusion and an aspiration. And then a few paragraphs later, you go on to say, while the American dream has never been an option for most members of some communities, queer folks, unmarried adults, black folks, people who grow up poor, just to name a few, it's also overpromised on the satisfaction, contentment, and happiness it delivers to people who do get their piece of it. The people winning at the American dream are some disconnected, unsatisfied, lonely people, end quote. Could you share your perspective on the American dream and how it influences what we're able to imagine for our lives and for our communities? Sure. So the American dream is this, and in some ways I use it as a, um, a, like a way to talk about patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, but it's those things kind of um, presented to us as this self-contained self kind of recipe for um, safety and success and for happiness. And for me, um, that was about like, you know, going to college and getting a career that allowed me to make enough money to support myself and a family and, you know, buying a house and saving for retirement, these things, um, and these paths that we believe, or we're taught to believe, right. will make us safe. will make us secure and will make us happy. And I think many of us measure our lives, um, against that standard and, anything. And what it looks like is, you know, you're, you get married, first of all, right? That's like family is um, legal marriage. Even if you're queer, it's still heteronormative. Um, family is a unit that has children in it, preferably biological. Um, and they, a family is, you know, financially secure and owns property. Um, and uh, doesn't rely on anyone outside of the family for fulfilling the needs of the family, right? So it's, it is not just that it is nuclear, it is also like self-contained, it's insular. Um, so any, so, you know, so then any deviation of that to that, if it's like, you know, you don't get married, you have um, you adopt kids, you don't have kids, you rent, um, all the, all the various things, right. Um, those are seen as personal failures. Never mind that not everybody wants those things. Never mind that many of those things like homeownership are increasingly out of reach, not because people aren't working hard or earning income, but because wages are stagnant and housing is expensive. So, 
and that's a systems failure, right? Not a personal one. Um, so the American dream is like selling us all of those things. And part of what it emphasizes, whether it is about us as people or us as a family unit is individual individuality, right? And this kind of um, independence alongside personal responsibility. And it's a denial of the ways that systems impact our lives. It's a denial of the ways in which we are inherently interdependent because we are human beings and we're social animals. I don't care if you are um, super wealthy, you did not get to be wealthy on your own and you do not, uh, you're not independent, right? Like I did not build my house. (laughs) I don't grow my own food, like things that I need to live. I'm either relying, I'm relying in some way on other people to help me have. Um, so there's a thing that we're sold, right? Um, and I think we, you know, and many of us to varying degrees strive to, um, meet it. And also, you know, like it used to be a very, very narrow, um, thing and it's opened up to some extent for queer people, for black people, like, but it still is very rigid in a lot of ways. Um, and it's a lie, right? We are not independent, nor should we like strive to be. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no, um, there's nothing to be gained from independence. And it, it's such a narrow, um, model for what it means to be happy, right? The idea that, that we're going to meet one person who is, um, we're going to like, who's going to fulfill all these things for us, right? We're going to like be in love with them. We're going to want to have sex with them. We're going to run a household with them. We're going to raise children with them. We're going to want to like do fun, like all these things, right? Do fun things with them. They're going to be our emotional support, like all this stuff that like two people are going to provide that for each other. And then that two people is enough to raise children. Never mind that like you're incomplete if you don't have either of those things in your life. So it's just a very narrow um, way of defining um, success and happiness. And um, I don't know people who, and this is, I'm speaking for myself in my circle of people, I don't know people who are, who are actually doing it, right? Um, and if they're trying, I don't know people who are doing it and feel like they've just like totally got their shit together and have succeeded and they're like happy the way they are. Um, as I said, the people who, who I've met who are succeeding at the American dream are often incredibly lonely and, or just feel a sense of like, there's something that they're supposed to be feeling that they're not, there's some, there's some satisfaction that they're supposed to have that they haven't reached and they don't know why. So I want to go a little bit more into that loneliness in a minute, but first I'd like to go a little bit more into what you were saying about the nuclear family and that narrow Mm -hmm. lens and how we can expand out from there. So you describe it, the nuclear family, which is a key part of the American dream, you know, as being very insular and self-sufficient. And then in how we show up, you go on to show, you know, many, many, many other ways to build a chosen family and to extend family beyond this sort of tight little biological unit. Um, And you yourself have a husband and two kids, but you write in the book, uh, you write, quote, from the beginning of our lives together, I knew that maintaining and continuing to develop my chosen family and my community was not only how I would get my needs met, but how my marriage and my kids would be supported, end quote. You just sort of started to kind of allude to that in your previous answer. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I think you already kind of addressed why the nuclear family is so problematic, but could you talk about why you advocate for family and community structures, which are significantly more expansive and varied? Um, I mean, I think partly because the idea that one family structure would work for everybody is absurd. Um, and I think that in particular that the nuclear family is just inherently flawed. Um, and I think it's a setup for failure for our marriages if we decide, or our partnerships, if we decide that's something we want to do. Um, you know, again, just the idea that there's this one person who's going to provide all of these things for you, um, is just a lie. And I think part, you know, I think, and part of what I, I have seen so many folks, um, do is they're struggling to try to make that work as opposed to recognizing, being able to be, you know, kind of like take an inventory of the things that they need in their lives and figure out like, well, where are the people, um, that I could like bring into my life who would allow me to have, to have all these needs met. Right. And how can I be that for other people in my life? Um, and then I think, you know, when it comes to kids and I have two of those, um, like we're definitely not raising those people by ourselves. We've got, um, like extended family, grandparents and, and aunts and uncles. We have a wide range of chosen family. Um, we've got, you know, community folks who all have, um, played a role and continue to play a role in us raising our children. Um, and part of it is like, you know, marriage, like trying to get all your needs fulfilled in marriage is a setup for failure. Trying to raise children with just two people is hard. But the other thing is like, how boring, like how boring would it be for children to have like two people in their lives who like, we're supposed to like give them all of their perspective and wisdom and knowledge and care and love. Oh my God. Like my kids have the most like gorgeous range of people in their lives of adults in their lives who give them so many examples of like how to be a person in the world and, um, the different paths one can take, you know, as you're moving into adulthood. Um, and they're just some other people who are like better at things than like my husband and I are when it comes to kids. And I think that that is, that is often true. Like why would one person, um, or two people like be amazing with like babies and toddlers and tweens and teenagers, or like the wide range of kinds of people children can be. Um, so I just think we do ourselves a disservice when we try to play this, like have this like single human or this like, you know, single family play this single family with like two people, two adults play this, this, um, expansive role. Um, I just think we're so much better off and our lives are so much more interesting when we have, um, multiple options for connection and intimacy and, um, example and modeling in our lives and care and love. Absolutely. I was talking with a friend the other day. We were talking about how our friends who have kids but who are divorced in certain ways have like way more freedom than our friends yes. who are married and raising children because they, you know, alternate custody. And so they're week able on, to week off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. So they're able to have this richness. <laughs> yeah. Um that is otherwise challenging when you're in that sort of mode of doing of doing everything together. So I want to come back to something that you started to touch on when we were talking about the American dream earlier. And um, in the book, you describe how you often give talks in front of audiences of you know very successful people 
And almost always at the end, a white man will come up to you and he will confess that he yearns for the sort of community that you describe, this kind of richness that you were just talking about. Um, And I wanted to read something that you wrote as you were kind of reflecting on that interaction. You wrote, quote, it was then that I started to see that the more successful I became, the harder it was for me to carve out the time that building connection demands and the less I prioritized deepening relationships. The more uncomfortable I became with being vulnerable and authentic, sharing my flaws, struggles, and fears, the more I felt the need to keep on my armor and present the most together, badass, brilliant version of myself, end quote. So I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about how this relentless pursuit of success as defined sort of by the American dream, the sort of prepackaged idea that we get, how does that cut us off from our relationships and from being in community? Hmm. Yeah. So the, as I was saying, like the American dream is about individualism and independence. And it's also a kind of performance, right? It is a performance of invincibility and like having your shit together. And if we're performing that, right, in our sense of self, our sense of like being a successful person is dependent on other people believing, right, that we have all our shit together, then we can't be known to each other. And being known is something that we fundamentally long for. And it's easy for you know, for, for us to allow people to like, see, you know, the ways in which we shine, the ways in which we are successful, the ways in which we are resilient. It is like our shadow sides and our failures and our messiness that is hard. And part of it is because it brings up our shame and the kind of being known that we long for is is the is like an antidote to that shame because it's a being known and not being rejected it's a being known and being loved and accepted right even though we feel like we're failing in some way and this is this cool thing that i learned from my therapist about shame <laughs> so fear and shame are like those systems our fear system and our shame system are some of the most primal systems that we have in our in our psyches and they're about survival Fear is the like, I'm being chased by a bear, like you're going to run. You don't have to think about it. You just go. Shame is the feeling we get. It's meant to keep us from doing things that will get us kicked out of the tribe. Which is also, especially like, you know, back in, I don't know, you know, primitive times, right? Like if you got kicked out of the tribe, you would die because you wouldn't have food. You wouldn't have shelter. You wouldn't have protection. Um, so when we feel fear and we feel shame, right, it is fear of death that we're, that's part of what we're experiencing. So shame has us hiding, right? These things, um, that make us feel like, oh my God, we might be rejected. Or what if somebody doesn't accept me for this? Um, because rejection used to mean death. But when we can show those sides of ourselves, which inherently means being vulnerable, and we are still loved, we are still accepted, we are still made to feel that we belong, 
then we like are in relationship, right? We are in connection. So the American dream and the way that it defines success and its inherent focus on independence and individualism is a rejection of connection. It's a rejection of the vulnerability that allows us to feel known and allows us to feel like we belong because we're constantly hiding who we really are. And therefore we don't actually belong and we're not actually seen. Mm, That's beautiful. It kind of moves into something else that I wanted to ask you. I was reflecting on this quote that kind of stopped me in my tracks the other day. I was listening to a podcast, an interview with um, Prentice Hemphill, an embodiment coach and a conflict facilitator. And they said, quote, there's a direct correlation between your satisfaction and your vulnerability, end quote. And so they weren't saying they're equal, but that there's correlation between the likelihood that you'll be satisfied and your willingness to be vulnerable. And that seems to kind of correlate uh, in a way to what you were saying, right? As we talk about how this pursuit of the American dream isolates us and makes us less willing to be vulnerable. And I'm just kind of curious how that idea lands with you of there being this correlation between satisfaction and vulnerability. Yes, I kind of love that. Okay, so first of all, I love Prentice. Um, They're some of my favorite people. Um, if you have not listened to their podcast, finding our way, I highly recommend it. And also if you haven't listened to it, I'm a little bit jealous because you get to like experience it for the first time. Um, it's awesome. Um, I mean, I think this goes back to a little bit of what I was saying about shame and that like vulnerability, right? Like the real safety in relationships comes from vulnerability. It is not we don't have, we're not safe when we hide ourselves, but we're safe when we are accepted and loved and cared for when we completely reveal ourselves. And I think that the way I'm interpreting that is like the satisfaction um, in relationship and satisfaction in depth of connection and satisfaction, the kind that you get from like having a really good conversation or eating a really good meal, right? Like all, that all is right with the world that, um, nourishment we get either, you know, emotionally or spiritually or physically, that that kind of satisfaction requires some kind of vulnerability with the people in our lives, um, to get to that place. Otherwise, if you're hiding, right, you're protecting something, there's, there's a piece of you that is like on edge, um, is being careful in some way. And you can't kind of like sink into that place of satisfaction because, um, you're protecting something. So I want to go a little more into and let me, how... Can I just say something? Let me just yeah, say yeah. something first. <laughs> All this shit is terrifying, right? <laughs> like I'm not, I don't want to like give anybody the impression <laughs> as I'm talking about like being vulnerable and like, you know, really revealing yourself and like all your messy side and your shame and blah, blah, blah. All this shit is completely terrifying. Like it is, it's hard. And I think that there is... And I, because, partly because I've experienced this, but partly because I just feel like this is what I see, right? There is so much joy, satisfaction, um, and pleasure to be found when we 
be brave and courageous and like just jump in with people and allow people into our inner lives and show them our like messy ass selves. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm assuming I'm also talking about being discerning about who we're doing this with, not like random people or people who you like know are assholes, right? Like we're, we're being discerning. Um, but I just like, I want to just like make clear, like it is totally hard and challenging and painful and like icky and uncomfortable, but it is also like joyful and pleasurable and amazing and beautiful. Thank you for that qualification. They don't call it (laughs) the shadow for nothing, I guess. Um, so I want to go a little more into, um, the sort of box of success that we're talking about and then how we can expand out of it. So as I was preparing for this interview, I was watching an interview that you, you did with uh, Veronica Chambers from the New York Times for the Aspen mm-hmm. Institute. And in that interview, you were talking about how holding up successful people as our models, you know, people who are successful by these standards of American dreamism, really narrows our lens about what we can mm-hmm. learn and maybe even what we're open to learning. And you went on to kind of reference all of the knowledge that is available to us from those who are typically not seen as quote unquote experts. And a lot of what you do in your work seems to be about moving away from expertise, so to speak, and gathering information instead from the lived experience of people on the ground. And you really do this in how we show up, right? Telling lots of stories from people that we don't normally get to hear from. Yeah. So my question is, what are we missing out on when we get overly focused on experts and expertise? Yes. So, and I will say that, like, I think of my work as expanding, like, what we think of as expertise, um, as opposed to, like, folks are not experts because of their lived experience. That is a kind of expertise, right? Right. So... So the kind of dominant model for expertise is constructed around whiteness and maleness and like elitism. And I think we could all agree that the kind of expertise and leadership that the dominant model has um, perpetuated for the last many hundreds, if not thousands of years, has not been particularly healthy for the planet or its inhabitants. Um, and this is also like when I say whiteness and maleness and elitism, like anybody can practice it. Um, it is not something that is, um, just the purview of white elite men, though they do a real, real, real good job. They're expertise. They're experts at that kind of expertise. Um, (laughs) but plenty of people of color, plenty of women, um, also practice it. Mm. So the knowledge and wisdom we're missing right, from people who cannot fit into that model, which is more women, people of color, indigenous people, uh, disabled people, children, poor people, but also like bees and wolves, redwoods, the mycelium, right? It's vast. And I go back to, you know, kind of what I said about like, like what's wrong with the nuclear family and what's wrong with um, like, you know, the, the idea that like a marriage is you're going to get all the things you need from this one person. It is boring y'all. <laughs> like we're missing so much. That is, you know, most of the planet is not that thing. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm clear that that thing has gotten us to a awful, this horrendous place that we're at right now. Clearly we need to be doing something different. Clearly there is wisdom and knowledge and perspective 
that we have not tapped into, that we have ignored or we have denied that will actually fix all the things that are wrong in the world. And when I thought about um, this book and I thought about, well, who are the people who I see practicing family and friendship and community in the most inclusive, nurturing, abundant, loving, caring ways, it was largely Black women, poor people, queer people, people with disabilities, sex workers, unhoused people. That is where I saw it happening. And I was like, well, those are the people I need to go talk to. (laughs) And I feel like that ends up being the case with so many of the things that I'm interested in figuring out how to solve for, right? If you ask um, a white academic about solving homelessness, you're more likely to get a, an answer that is like, well, they need to do a study. <laughs> if you ask an unhoused person about solving homelessness, they will tell you that the way you solve homelessness is by giving people homes. <laughs> I mean, you know, like this is not, is not that complicated. And mm. we, uh, you know, and the other thing is that elitism wants to maintain the status quo um, because power is concentrated in those um, areas of expertise. So we have people doing studies on things we don't need to study and pontificating about things that they have zero experience with um, and deciding um, what success looks like, right? Or what impact looks like without talking to the people that are actually, um, they're actually discussing, right? Um, so largely part of it is just feels like a kind of logic to me that if you want to understand an issue or a problem that you should talk to the people who are experiencing it, not somebody who is, has studied it and doesn't actually, isn't in it. And that was, you know, a lot of that, that thinking came from the economic justice work that I've done, um, in recognizing that like, oh, poor people will tell you how to not be poor. It's not, it's not, you know, financial literacy. (laughs) It's not, um, you know, program, it's not after school programs. It is like people are poor because they don't have money because people are poor because of wealth hoarding. (laughs) People who are poor didn't make themselves poor. They're not doing anything to be poor. It is the wealth hoarders who are causing poverty. So just shifting all of that for me has, has, over the last 20 years, just like changed how I understand how we address issues, how we solve problems, um, how we make things better, how we build new systems. Um, because somebody is always doing it and it is usually not in the places we're paying attention to as a society, not in the places we're paying attention to. So speaking about how we can do things in a different way, um, I'd like to talk about one of the examples that you use in the book, um, which includes you. So you write in the book about a group that you and your friend created called the Black Women's Freedom Collective. And you describe the magic that happens when you all come together. And you write, quote, what I feel at BWFC is an alchemy whereby we create more love and time and energy together than we hold individually. At our best, we don't function based on reciprocation. It's not about getting as much out of it as we put in. It's that our output is transformed into a wholly different material that's not possible to create alone. 
And then a little bit later, you go on through these women, my understanding of care, care of myself and care of others has become void of the binary framing of this or that input and output. Suddenly care of others is care of myself. Care of myself is care for others, end quote. So I would love to hear you expand on that last sentence. Care of others is care of myself. Care of myself is care for others. This idea is obviously fairly incompatible with or in direct opposition to the messages that we get from capitalism, that we get from American dreamism. What conditions do you think need to be present in order for this level of mutual care to arise? Mm. Yes. Um. An orientation toward abundance is necessary. Um, a belief that there is more than enough for all of us. Um, and that it's not, this is why like community is important. This is why the village is important as opposed to just like um, kind of one-on-one relationships, right? So if I think about um you know, if I have a thing that I need and I ask one person and they're not able to support me in that thing, then I've received like a no about the thing that I need. But if I ask a group of people, then I can tap into like whatever levels of capacity exist in that group. And what I've found is that when we have that, um, it's, it's more like, it's like a, I'm sure there's like a metaphor that I've used to describe it, but it feels like it's this like swirling um, web, I'm going to say, of um, resilience and capacity. Mm. And um, when I put something into it, when I add to it, right, if I'm caring for other people who are in that swirling web, like that care um, radiates through the entire system and it multiplies. Same when I, if I pull out of it, right, if I need something from it and I'm given that thing, it doesn't diminish the capacity that's inside of that system because we are all constantly putting into and taking from it. And there's, and the drawing from it actually creates its own capacity um, because one of the things that we love to do is support our loved ones, right? It is a gift when someone is um, asking us for help. So, that kind of abundance um, orientation feels important. And then I think there's something about that that for me ends up being the difference between, um, and this might this is my own, I don't know what the dictionary says about these words, but for me, it's the difference between mutuality and reciprocity, right? Reciprocity feels like um, uh, an exchange, like a mathematical exchange, right? Um, I do something for you and then you put that in a bank, right? And then later I can, or I put it in a bank and later I can draw on it and you do something for me. Whereas mutuality is a recognition that we all have um, different capacities. We all have um, changing capacities and um, we're trying to support the existence of everyone in the system and the system itself. Um, And the system in this case, like being a community. I think another thing that's important is um, a kind of faith, right? That like your, um, that if you're, you know, putting into the system, right? That when you need something, it will be there for you. And that if you're pulling from the system, you're not going to be judged or shamed for needing the support of other people. 
And I think that that requires a kind of faith because it is not sometimes the arc, right. Of like, um, what we are giving and what we are receiving is a long one, right? Like maybe I'm going to be putting into the system for a year and I don't ever need anything from it until like later, but I'm trusting that the mutuality that I'm participating in is going to be there for me when I need it. And then I think that there's also a necessity for good boundary setting. Um, one of the things that my uh, therapist said to me um, a while ago, which made me angry, <laughs> was that resentment. So I've always, I always had thought of resentment as like an indication when like somebody else has like taken too much and I get to be self-righteous and like mad at them. <laughs> and she was like, no, no, no. Resentment is information for you <laughs> that a boundary has been crossed. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> um, and I think that, and it's not necessarily a specific boundary. Sometimes it's just that like we've given beyond our capacity, like, and, and, and my therapist talks about like giving freely. Um, and when you give freely, you are giving and you're not going to feel resentment from doing that. But there are these times when we like give because we think we're supposed to, or it's obligation, or we're going to like earn points with our God or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that makes us feel resentment. And that this system that I'm talking about, um, doesn't work if the people who are participating in it feel resentment. And that for us is about good boundary setting. Um, so knowing when we need to say no, um, knowing when they're just, there are things that we're not, um, meant to be part of participating in, um, and being clear with that about ourselves and then communicating that with the people we're in community with. I came across that same learning about resentment recently and had your same reaction. I was like, oh, damn uh. it. I know. <laughs> That's my responsibility. <laughs> totally. Um, let's go a little more into this asking for help um, piece of what you were just talking about. You share a lot of stories in the book around the idea of asking for help and also of giving help proactively without being asked. And one of the things that you demonstrate in the book is how this culture of American dreamism and our deep desire to be self-sufficient and our desire to have privacy really suppresses our ability to ask for help, as well as to develop relationships that have the depth necessary for someone to even anticipate our needs in the first place. So I'm curious, how are you seeing folks be in relationship and offer help in ways that inspires you? Hmm. Well, I'll give you the most um, present example for me. And that is that a few weeks ago, I was diagnosed with cancer and had to have surgery to have a chunk of my colon removed. And um, I told a handful of people in my community and immediately four of my friends circled up and created a care squad that dealt with like updates and logistics for making sure that like my community at large knew what was going on. They created a like thing. So my family is getting fed and I have to eat different food from them. So then I have other people who are feeding me um, anytime I, I was like, oh, I need a duffel bag to go to the hospital. A duffel bag showed up on my porch. I needed, you know, kids picked up and dropped off. I just need to let the care squad know. And they like figure it out. 
So I've had this um, incredible experience of um, people who are in my life and who know me well enough and trust their own intuition about what I need to just decide that they're taking this thing on. I didn't have to ask them. I didn't have to, I mean, they said, we would like to do this. Is that okay with you? Um, but I didn't have to request it. And then I had like, as I was telling, you know, kind of different groups of friends, I had like three other groups of friends offer to do the same thing. And I was just like, y'all just, somebody else already did that. Um, and the way that they have shown up for me and my husband and my children is just extraordinary. And I wish everyone, I mean, I do not wish anybody to join the like shitty cancer club, but I wish everyone the depth and fierceness of love and care and protection that I've experienced. I had people, um, the day of my surgery show up outside the hospital, a group of people showed up outside the hospital and sang. I didn't hear them cause I was, you know, uh, <laughs> I was out in an operating room, but I knew that they were out there singing for me. So just like this, like, I mean, I, there's so many examples of how people have been showing up for, for me and my husband and my kids, um, as we've been navigating all of this. And, um, I'm grateful for the ways in which I learned, I think, particularly during the pandemic, um, how I learned to ask for help and offer help, because it meant that in this moment, when I very much needed the support of other people, that I did not hesitate when they said, here's how we're going to help you. I was like, yes. And when I have needed something, I've been like, hey, I need this thing. And um, I don't hesitate. I don't feel shame about it. I feel like I'm like, I know that this is what my loved ones want me to be doing is to be leaning on them in this moment. Um, and I, like I said, I don't know, I want anybody to join the shitty cancer club, but I do want us to, um, build the kinds of relationships, the kinds of communities that really allow us to lean in when we really need to lean in and to ask for support when we really need it. Thank you for having the courage to share that very personal example with us. It's really beautiful the way that your friends came together for you. And I'm going to be fine, y'all, just so you know, I'm not dying. <laughs> just to be clear. <sighs> Wonderful. You mentioned your friends and even yourself um, leaning into this intuition about what you needed. And I want to kind of go from the remarkable sort of story that you just told and kind of juxtapose that maybe with what normally happens in situations like this. Like so often, you know, the refrain is when someone is ill or someone is grieving or someone is just generally struggling with something, you know, that you say something like, I'm here if you need anything, just ask, right? But then of course, you almost never hear from that person. They may not know what they need. They may not have the energy to ask for it. And I wanted to share this quote from your friend, Caroline, uh, that you share in the book where she says, quote, there's a labor involved in people articulating their needs sometimes that is exhausting when you're already down. And I think without taking people's autonomy or initiative away from them, I'm trying to be more specific in terms of how I offer support to people. I want to come over and do your dishes and throw some laundry in. Would that be okay with you? 
Or I know this is really hard. Can I maybe look into where you could get some resources for this? Or can I take your kids because I'd really love to have them today while you go do something for yourself or whatever it is, end quote. So there's definitely an art to supporting people in this way, which is really demonstrated beautifully in the example that you just shared. I feel like a lot of what I see happening in the world, or if I think about how to do this, it is really tapping into that intuition, right? And that involves being really deeply thoughtful and tuned in in a way that I think a lot of us don't make room for in our sort of rushed everyday lives. Um, so I'm curious, I guess, from the other end of the spectrum, how are you like experimenting with offering help when it's not asked for? Yeah. Um, I do a lot of prefacing <laughs> when I'm about to get into somebody's business. Um, I think one of the things I try to make clear is that I'm bringing it up because I'd rather offer and have the offer be refused than not offer and find out later that the support that I could have offered was needed. Um, and I, th I just remind, you know, when I'm doing this with people, I also remind them that like, I know it can be hard for, to ask for help. So I'm trying to bridge that gap a little bit by offering something specific. Um, cause part of it really is about giving people permission, um, to say yes. And I think, you know, in the example you, you mentioned is like saying just like, I'm here, if you need anything, just ask, like people really often don't know what they need. Um, I mean, you know, I think all of us probably have experiences where like, we know that there's something wrong and we do not know what we need. Um, we don't know what would bring us ease. Um, and having someone offer something specific allows us to just say yes or no or even to say yes and see what happens. Um, and I find that there's the, there's often a kind of practical thing that is helpful, but then so often what we really need is to be witnessed. We need to be witnessed in our, whatever is hard or painful, um, for us. We need, um, to be witnessed in, as a way of like processing whatever it is. Sometimes we just need somebody to like listen um, to what we have to say and like ask the kinds of questions that um, give us permission to just like process out loud without making any sense to them, right? Without, it's not about filling them in on what's happening, but it really is just about like emoting verbally. Um, or sometimes we actually just need somebody to just like sit with us in silence and like hold space for us to be sad or angry or, um, scared. And I think, I guess part of why we don't do that, we don't do it because we're worried about like, um, getting up in somebody else's business in a way that's unwanted. And I think the answer to that is just to be like, Hey, I'm going to offer this thing. And if you don't want it, let me know. And then they can tell us. Um, and I think we also are afraid of messing it up, right? We're afraid of doing it wrong. Um, and I think that we can also sometimes say that without putting too much emphasis on how we're feeling and what we're worried about and making it about us. Um, but we can say, hey, I don't know if this is what you need, but this is like something I'd like to offer. If it's the wrong thing, let me know and I can try to think of something else. Like part of it is about like telling on ourselves um, in the process of offering the thing to people. Um, and I so often find that really it's just like I need to just like make the first move and crack the thing open. And then um, that just creates space for me to be more creative about what it is I'm offering and for the person to be 
um, to have permission to ask for what they need. Mm. I think you're right about like the slowing down, right? Mm. And that sometimes the it's not figuring out the exact thing, but it's creating the space um, for for everyone to slow down enough to actually listen to the intuition, right? My intuition to offer their intuition about what they might need. Um, and having that, that pause, um, is the place that like births some clarity about what's necessary. Mm, I love that. I love telling on ourselves and a lot of prefacing. Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit now and talk about, food and community, which um, comes up in a big way toward the end of the book. And one of the examples that I really loved was where you talk about the People's Kitchen Collective and these really incredible events that they put together that mix food and people and politics. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about the event series that they they did that was to the streets, to the farm, to the kitchen, um, what that looked like and how it fostered community. Oh my God. So first of all, People's Kitchen Collective, um, the founders, Saqib, Jocelyn, and Sita are some of the most creative, extraordinary people that I know. And um, they did this year-long series called From the Farm to the Kitchen to the Table to the Streets um, that, I mean, it was this invitation to center the voices and experiences and wisdom and aesthetic, um, of people of color, both in terms of like ways in which our lives are shaped by displacement and land loss and like, you know, inability to act, um, access resources, but also, um, resilience and beauty and deliciousness and like collective nourishment. Um, the farm was the first, um, uh, event that one was largely about land loss. Um, the kitchen one, and I'm not, y'all should just look at their website to like find like the depth of their videos and all kinds of things. Uh. The kitchen one, the thing I remember most about that is that they did this, um, this two-year research project, um, collecting people's kitchen remedies, like the things that, you know, your grandmother or your auntie would give you for a stomach ache or a headache. Um, the table one was, um, Oh, that one was the, it was a remembrance of the signing of executive order, um, nine zero six, six, which was the federal order that began Japanese internment. Um, and it was really, um, centering the memories of Japanese American folks in a way that, that, um, talked about the importance of solidarity among communities of color. And then, um, the streets, which was the final event was this, it was a, outdoor in West Oakland. Um, and, and I'll say, so the people's kitchen collective is, is, uh, deeply influenced by the black Panthers, um, free breakfast program. And they actually do a free breakfast program every year, um, during this festival in Oakland called life is living. Um, so they did this meal for 500 people, um, in West Oakland near the site of where, um, little Bobby Hutton was murdered by the police 50 years before. Um, and oh, I mean, I don't even know how to tell you how gorgeous and delicious it is. And this is one of the things about, about what I, that I love about them is that they practice a kind of, um, 
service and care and love in these events that I feel like I don't, I rarely see anywhere else and on such a massive scale. Right. So, you know, this, this, it was basically like a long table that served 500 people and there was flowers on the table. There was beautiful cloth. Um, there were these centerpieces. Um, and then these events of course have like their collaborations with like, um, local farms and, um, restaurants and artists and performers, um, and activists. So there's like, you know, there's poetry, there's like music. Um, it's just extraordinary and it's delicious. (laughs) It is always delicious. And, um, that one in particular, the streets one, my daughter and I, um, were part of the kitchen crew. So we like, you know, in the days before the event showed up in the kitchen and were cooking. Um, and even in that environment, right. If you think about like, uh, is that noise really, really loud for you all? Can you hear it? You can hear it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I was not anything I can do about it. I don't know. I asked anyway, (laughs) how it is in these COVID times, I am sitting, you know, in a room in my house. Um, so like, if you think about like a restaurant kitchen and I feel like we all have a picture of like how like terrifying those environments can be and how like fast paced they are and, and how like toxic they can be like the kitchen for this meal was this like beautiful, nourishing thing. There was food so people could like have snacks. There was a lot of people um, well-organized so that like people could take breaks. Nobody was like, you know, working, you know, 18 hour days. Um, it was just this beautiful environment. And like, people were patient with me and my kid and like helped us like figure out what it was we wanted to do. Everybody's skills are used well. So they just create this whole, um, experience from both like the back end of like, you know, the cooking and like the hospitality and kind of like how people are invited into the space and then the meal itself and all of the food and the aesthetic and the performance of it that reminds me that things like that can happen in a way that don't require the sacrifice of the people putting them on, right? It does not have to be a thing where people are drained from and exhausted and not nourished and cared for while it's, while the creation is happening. Um, and that's one of the things that's most powerful to, I mean, there's many things about their work that are really powerful to me, but like in this moment, that's the thing that's, that is, um, sticking out for me. Hmm. Yeah. The scale of the events and the sort of beautiful energy that they bring to it sounds absolutely incredible. And one thing I was struck by when I was reading those stories, and you you go into sort of some of the personal stories of the three founders, Saqib, Jocelyn, and Sita. And when you talk about how they kind of came into doing this really wonderful work with food at its heart, for all of them, it seemed like it naturally flowed from how central food and gathering was to how they had grown up and how they interacted with people. I'm thinking in particular here of the incredible massive family gatherings that you described that were a normal part of life for Saqib, like sort of 200-person family gatherings, Mm -hmm. uh, which sounds unimaginable to me. Um, And, you know, it was making me think one of my mentors says that people often don't notice their gifts because you know, because your gifts come so easily to you, like so Mm -hmm. naturally that you don't even think of it as something that you're offering. And I'm curious what you think about that idea and how your own sense of of your gift and your purpose has evolved over the years. 
Mm. I mean, I still feel like I'm still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I mean, I think the, the thing that I have come into awareness of about what I'm here for and what gifts I bring are about the ways in which I, um, bring together community and hold space for us to be with each other and practice something that is about the world we want to create and not the world we live in. Um, that they are places for us to practice the future. That feels like, um, Yeah, that feels like the constant invitation that I give to um, the people that I'm in community with. Places to practice the future. I love that. So my last question is, the theme of this season of Hurry Slowly is, how do we begin again? So if you could ask the folks listening to reflect on one big question as we emerge back into community. We're sort of emerging, retreating, emerging, but as we eventually emerge <laughs> back into community, what would that question be? How are you practicing consent? And I think, um, you know, consent is a, a kind of topic of discussion that we, I think, most associate with sex and like sexual activity with other people. Um, but I feel like so much about the last year and a half has required us to, and we're not always doing this, but I think it certainly asks us to think about how are we being in consensual relationship with other people when, um, breathing right in somebody else's presence has the potential to make them sick. How are we thinking about their safety how are we thinking about our own safety? How are we thinking about the safety of people they might interact with? Um, and how are we having um, conversations that we didn't used to have to have about um, consent and about like uh, what we're willing to do with each other um, and what we're not willing to do? Um, I have a, a group of... So one of the things I did during the, during the um, pandemic is I started a coven and, um, we are all going on vacation with each other, um, next week, um, which is the end of August when we planned the vacation, there was no Delta variant. Um, and we were all vaccinated now there is. So we had a conversation yesterday where we got really explicit about what it is each of us needed to feel safe. Um, and I just love how for us, um, because we have talked about this before, how easy that conversation was and that we went into it, not with the like fear about asking for what we needed, um, or a, a sense that we needed to like ask the other people what they were doing, but that there was this, like each of us wanted to know, what do I need to do to take care of you? What do I need to do? right? What do we need to do to make sure that each of the people in this group feel safe, you know, spending a few days in the house together? Um, and I've, I'm just like, oh yeah, <laughs> like we figured out how to do that. And that's a, some, that's something that I feel like I'm taking out of the pandemic and I want more of us 
to be asking those questions of ourselves. Um, certainly because we know that COVID's not going away any, anytime soon, but I feel like there are tons of other places in our lives where we should be asking, what do you need to feel safe right now? And not assume that people are going to just tell us, um, or that we know, what do you need to feel safe? What do you need to feel comfortable? What do you need to feel welcome? Right? What do you need, um, to feel like you can access the space we're in together easily. And I think that that, you know, in an ideal world, all of us feel completely um, comfortable and empowered to just ask for what we need, but we don't live in that world. And I think we can do more to, you know, this is what I feel like the whole like wearing of masks, right? Like we, like part of the, the narrative that we heard in the beginning of the pandemic is like, I'm wearing a mask to take care of you. Right. And I want us to have that orientation, um, toward each other generally. What am I doing to take care of you? Like, what do you need to feel safe? What do you need to be okay? In that conversation that I referenced earlier with embodiment coach and conflict facilitator Prentice Hemphill, they too brought up this question of consent, which has been highlighted so starkly by all that's unfolded with the pandemic. And I love the constellation of questions that Mia teased out of this exploration of consent. What do you need to feel safe? What do you need to feel welcome? What do you need to feel okay. We are being called to exercise an ever deeper tenderness and attentiveness in relationship with one another. To act, as Mia writes in How We Show Up, as if care of others is care for ourselves. How can you practice consent today? This podcast is produced by Matt Susich with additional audio fine-tuning from Devin Craig Johnson. If you'd like to stay in touch with me, you can sign up for the Hurry Slowly newsletter, which is really just my personal newsletter, at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. If you'd like to make a contribution to Hurry Slowly to help sustain us for the future, you can visit hurryslowly.co slash donations. I am deeply appreciative of whatever amount you can give. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to hurry slowly.